we open up our Bibles tonight to Luke chapter 8, and we're going to start here at verse... Sorry, I'm waiting for my iPad notes. I, I don't know why sometimes they won't flip. There we go. Luke chapter 8, we're going to start now at verse 40, and uh, we're going to consider this story that, you know, maybe if, if, if I was in an atmosphere where I could teach for longer, I would have included this in last week's study. But this, this, these two healings, and I would call this the witness of two healings, these two healings that we have at the end of Luke chapter 8, I think are so significant and so powerful in the way that they speak to us that it, it's worth it for us just to slow down a little bit and consider uh, Luke chapter 8, not in two weeks, but over three different Wednesday nights. Let's begin with this verse 40, Luke chapter 8. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Then behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had only a daughter, excuse me, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. You know, it's easy to visualize this, isn't it? Jesus, as he makes his way through the cities and the villages around Galilee, uh, there are crowds pressing in on him everywhere that he goes. There are needy people who reach out to him. And sometimes it's because they do have a personal need. They, they have a healing that, that they're seeking from God. They have a desire that they want granted. They know somebody who's demon-possessed. Maybe it's a personal need that, you know, makes them press in upon Jesus. But you also so by this point in Jesus' ministry, you just have the celebrity factor, don't you? You just have people who are just dying to be close to something where the action is. And some great leader, or they want to hear his teaching or something like that. But the bottom line is that there's a significant crowd. Now, we don't know exactly where this took place, but the best evidence would indicate that it was in Capernaum. Which sort of is interesting to me, because Capernaum was now Jesus' city of residence. You wouldn't call it his hometown, but it was his new adopted hometown. He moved from Nazareth to Capernaum when he began his ministry. This would also tell us that, that when we're introduced to this man named Jairus, who's the leader of the synagogue, that this man was somewhat known to Jesus already. There would have been some familiarity. And so what's the situation? Well, as Jesus goes through, verse 40, the multitude welcomed him. As a matter of fact, it says there that they were all waiting for him. Everybody's filled with a high sense of anticipation as Jesus comes into town and as Jesus leaves after he did this exciting deliverance of the gathering demoniac that we saw last week. But then there came a man to him who had a tremendous need. This man, number one, verse 41, was a ruler of the synagogue. In those days, the ruler of the synagogue was somewhat like our modern day pastor. Now, he wouldn't necessarily do all the preaching, but he was responsible for sort of presiding over the worship services of the synagogue. He would sort of choose certain things that would be read and choose certain things that would be said. And it's not like he dominated the entire service, but it, as much as anybody, he was the man who sort of conducted the synagogue service. I will tell you this, that if this was in Capernaum or whether it was someplace else, this man was a notable man in the community. Everybody knew who he was. He had a position of prestige and status. But what good did that do? Because what did he do? Verse 41, it says that he fell down at Jesus' feet and he begged. What would lead this man to beg so? His only daughter was dying. Didn't that just hit you right there in the heart? 
I mean, listen, you would feel this way for anybody who had a child who was at the point of death. There's just something that seems so wrong, that just seems so unfair when any time you think of a parent having to bury their child. It doesn't work that way. It's the children who should bury the parents, is it not? Whenever the parent has to bury the child, you think something's gone wrong. It's not working the way that it's supposed to work. And it's even increased in agony when we consider that it was a daughter. You just think of how precious this 12-year-old little girl was to this man. 12 years of age is a delightful age for a little girl. Don't you agree? Now give them a few years and they become more problematic. But 12 years age, they're just, it's just something wonderful about this age. Such a ray of sunshine in this uh, ruler of the synagogue's life. But put all on top of that, it's his only daughter. We would surmise, although I don't know if the text says it exactly, but we would say only child. This is it. And this one beautiful shining light in his life is about to be extinguished. So what does he do? He comes to Jesus and he says this, Jesus, would you please come to my house? Now, not long before this, we saw an occasion where a Roman centurion came to Jesus. And this Roman centurion didn't have a son who was ill, but a servant. And what did the Roman centurion say to Jesus? Did the Roman centurion demand that Jesus come to his house to heal his servant? No. The Roman centurion said to Jesus, Jesus, stay where you are. I know that you're a man under authority. And because I'm a man under authority, I know how this works in the spiritual realm as well as in the practical realm. Jesus, all you have to do is say it. Say the word and I know that my servant will be healed. Isn't it a little bit surprising to you that the ruler of the synagogue has less faith than the Roman centurion? We're supposed to be a little bit scandalized. by Good heavens, look at this. The pastor has, well, I, I'll just be, but the pastor has less faith than the policeman. But you know, maybe the policeman just had a better relationship with God than the pastor. I don't know. But that's how it is in this particular situation. Now, I, I think it's wonderful word there in verse 40, 42. Did you notice there? It says, but as he went, the multitude throngs. Now, I, I don't mean to belabor the obvious, but what does it tell us? Jesus went with him. You have the scene, don't you? Jesus gets off the boat from the Sea of Galilee. He's coming, as I guess, into Capernaum. I can't say it for sure, but probably into Capernaum. Crowds around him everywhere. Then everybody kind of clears aside because the important man, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, comes to Jesus. And he gets down on his knees and he begs Jesus, please, Jesus, my daughter is at the point of death. Please rush to my house. Would you please come and heal her? And Jesus did not say this. Jesus didn't say, you know what? I've met Roman centurions with more faith than you, mister. Jesus didn't despise him. He said, okay, you think I have to be there in order to heal your daughter? Then fine, I'll accommodate that. I'll bless it. I will come and I will come. Let's go to your house. So as he's making his way, what does it say? That the multitude thronged him. The ancient Greek word that's translated thronged there means basically that it was almost suffocating to him. You've been in crowds like that, haven't you? I mean, people are pressing it on you so much. You, 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 it's, it's a little hard to breathe. So that's the scene. You can picture that kind of scene right there. It's a little hard to breathe because of all the people pressing in on Jesus. All right, you got that scene firm in your mind? Yes? Okay, now verse 43. Now a woman 
having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Whoa! Here's Jesus making his way so thick in a multitude that he can't even take proper steps. You know, he kind of has to do that shuffling kind of step that you do in a great big crowd. He's making his way in the midst of this throng sort of pulsating down the street here in Capernaum. And what happens? A woman secretly, not trying to draw notice to herself at all, she kind of worms her way into the crowd, you know, the way that it is when you want to get and see at the front of the parade and you work your way through the crowd and you just kind of read and poke your head through and she reaches out and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. Now, what was this woman's problem? Well, she had had a flow of blood for 12 years. Then you say, well, okay, she had some sort of, you know, um, gynecological problem, something like that. Okay, we understand. But what you need to understand was this was far more than a medical malady for this woman. Because by the ceremonial ritual laws of Israel, it made her unable to participate in ceremonial and in some ways civic life. She was, to to use a phrase, and I hope you understand this without me having to explain it a lot, she was considered to be ceremonially unclean. And so you could not touch her or sit on a chair that she just sat upon or such things, you could not do that without becoming ceremonially unclean yourself. Now look, to to be ceremonially unclean, it wasn't the end of the world. But it just meant it was a hassle. You had to undergo a purification thing. You had to do a few rituals. You had to wait a little bit of time. It wasn't the end of the world. People didn't say, oh, my life has ended. I'm ceremonially unclean today. Nobody thought like that. But it was a hassle. And so, let me put it this way. People avoided this woman. You'd just rather not know. She had lived in some kind of isolation and some kind of rejection and some kind of way out on the margins of of the city life, of the religious life of that community. For 12 years she had lived this way. And she was sick of it. She was so tired of it. She was so desperate for help that when she heard that Jesus just got off the boat, you can imagine she just like everybody else in the city, she was part of that great throng. And she said, oh, I need to touch Jesus. I need to lay hold of the hem of his garment. Now, this is what happened. Verse 43. She had spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed. She went to the doctors to get better But she only suffered worse and became poorer. You see, Luke, the physician, knew how doctor bills could take everything that you had. And he knew that that was the case with this poor woman. I wonder if Luke kind of gripped his pen a little bit tighter when he wrote those words. But he was filled with sympathy for this woman, was he not? Here's this poor woman. She has all these problems and she goes to the doctor, just like any intelligent woman. Well, go to the doctor. Maybe the doctor can help me. The doctors could not help her. And all she was for the thing of it was poorer. The uh, ancient rabbis had many different formulas to help a woman afflicted in this manner. Um, Let me read you a quotation from Adam Clark. Rabbi Yohanan says... Take of gum Alexandria, of alum, and of Corcasus hortensius, the weight of a zuzu each. I have no idea what a zuzu is. Let, let, let them be bruised together and be given in wine to the woman who hath an issue of blood. But if this fail, take of 
Persian onions, nine logs, boil them in wine, and give it to her to drink, and say to her, Arise from thy flux, but should this fail, set her in a place where two ways meet, and let her hold a cup of wine in her hand, and let somebody come from behind and frighten her, and say, Arise from thy flux, but if this should do no good, dot, 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 dot. You see how it worked. I mean, they had their own potions. They had their own ideas. This is how we can help this woman. But the bottom line today is none of it could help. Now, I just want you to imagine for a minute, there are many people who have never shared this woman's disease or gynecological misfortune. They've never shared that very same thing, but they're in the same position that this woman is in. And this is what I mean. They are sick souls. And these sick souls go to different doctors and they spend a great deal of time with those different doctors. They spend a great deal of money with those different doctors. And you know what they get from it? Nothing. All they end up is poorer and worse off. For example, a sick soul goes to doctor entertainment. He's one of the favorite doctors in our culture today, isn't he? Doctor Entertainment, won't you please heal me of this emptiness in my soul? My soul is sick. Please, Doctor Entertainment. You know what Doctor Entertainment does? He takes your money and he doesn't heal you, but you just end up poor. And you realize I'm still sick in my soul. So what do you do next? Well, then you go to um, Doctor Success, but Doctor Success can't help you. You go to Doctor Pleasure, Doctor Self-Help, Doctor Religion. None of those can bring a real cure. The only one that can heal your soul is Doctor Jesus. But this is the same case, and we just have a sympathy for this woman. Now, knowing her condition and knowing the ceremonial uncleanness that was associated with it, we understand fully why she wanted to keep this a secret. People would have been outraged if she would have gone up to Jesus, this great rabbi, and given a great big bear hug. You just made him ceremonially unclean. You can't do that to the rabbi. So what does she do? She secretly reaches a hand in through the crowd and it says that she touched the border of his garment. She desperately wanted to be healed, but she couldn't bring herself to openly ask Jesus for the healing. What did she touch? Well, it says that she touched the border or the fringe of his garment. That ancient Greek word refers to the tassel that male Jews were to wear on the corners of their outer garments. You'll see this on some of the shawls and some of the garments that some Orthodox Jews wear today. She probably wanted to touch those particular areas of Jesus's garments. She felt that there was something spiritual or or powerful in that. I don't need him to pray for me. I don't need him to speak to me. If I just touch the corner of his garment, this tassel, this, this, you know, group of threads out there, I'll be healed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, would you not agree that there's something superstitious in this woman's belief? There is an element of superstition in her faith. And I think it's interesting that even though there is definitely an element of superstition, there is also an element of faith. Look, let's face it, sometimes we, we, we expect of ourselves or we expect of other people to just sort of be, you know, mighty in faith. And, and, but it's complicated, isn't it? Some of you have real elements of superstition connected with your faith. And I pray that God grows me and grows you out of those things. But look, what, what I think is wonderful is that Jesus didn't despise it because even though there were elements of superstition, she still did have some genuine faith. So notice what she did. She reached out 
She touched, and not because of some magic, not because of some ceremony, not because of some, you know, vibe or force or something like that, but because she did have faith in the power of Jesus, she was healed. It says it right there in verse 44. And immediately the flow of her blood stopped. Now, according to the thinking of that day, as soon as that woman reached out and touched Jesus, she made him unclean. But isn't it interesting that it didn't work that way? Instead of her making him unclean, he made her clean. And doesn't it work that way every time a sinner reaches out to Jesus today? You'll never make Jesus unclean by grabbing hold of him. No, he'll transfer his cleanliness, his purity unto you. And so this woman was made whole. Now, you you would think, great, wonderful, story's over. You know, she sneaks away. She's healed. Isn't it great? Not so fast, lady. Verse 45. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, I can just imagine the sarcasm in Peter's voice right here. Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him the presence of all the people, the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I love these verses. First of all, Jesus says, whoa, stop, stop. Now, it might have taken him a little bit to stop. I mean, the crowd kind of has its own pace, its own momentum. But Jesus, he's the, you know, the center of the crowd. He's, whoa, whoa, everybody stop. So they all stop. It gets real quiet. And Jesus says this, okay, wait, somebody touched me. Can you imagine everybody looked at one another? What, has he gone crazy? Everybody's touching you. What do you mean somebody touched me? Did you become some kind of germophobic guy now? You don't want anybody to touch you? Jesus, what's the problem? Somebody touched me? But again, even though there were many people making physical contact with Jesus, you would just say it might be dozens of people in the last couple of minutes made some kind of physical contact with Jesus. There was only one who reached out to him with the hand of faith to receive something that they knew that Jesus could give to her. Only one. And that's why Jesus said, stop, somebody touched me. Now, in response, look at it there in verse 45. Peter replies, master, the multitude's throng impress you. What are you saying, Jesus? Jesus was trying to teach them something they didn't understand. Because Peter and the other disciples did not understand something that many people today don't understand. That there is a huge difference between casual contact with Jesus and reaching out and touching him with the hand of faith. I I pray you'll listen carefully to this because I think this is a huge issue. It is possible to attend church, a good church. It is possible to be in the presence of the teaching of God's word, perhaps even good teaching. It's possible to be in the presence of true, sincere worship where God is worshipped in spirit and in truth. It's possible to be around people who love God and want to grow. It's possible to be in the midst of all that environment and you only make casual contact with Jesus. 
It's an entirely different thing to not just, so to speak, bump up against Jesus. Now, look, can I say that's better than nothing? But it's still a huge difference between that and actually reaching out to the Savior with the hand of faith and saying this, save me now. I need you, Jesus. That's what the woman did. And I just want that to sink down into your soul for a moment because maybe you need to hear that for yourself. Maybe you're a person who wonders, and and you never even articulate this because it's kind of too embarrassing, spiritually speaking, to to say this. But, But if you were to explain it, you'd explain it like this. Why is it that people around me seem to get blessed and I don't? Why is it that other people seem to get so much out of worship or the word of God and it seems to pass me by? Why? And look, I don't know if I could give you every answer to that, but I'll give you one partial answer right here, right now. It's because perhaps even though you're in the vicinity of Jesus, you're around him, you're making casual contact. What you're not doing is you're not reaching out to him with a hand of needy, desperate faith and saying, Jesus, I need you. It's an entirely different thing. I like what a Charles Spurgeon said. He said, it is not every contact with Christ that saves men. It is the arousing of yourself to come near to him. The determination, the personal, resolute, believing touch of Jesus Christ, which saves. That's an entirely different thing than sort of bumping into Jesus. And some people bump into Jesus but never reach out and lay hold of the hand of faith. There's a big difference between the two. Well, when the woman did that, immediately she knew she was healed. Jesus knew that something happened. I find this fascinating. Did you see that in verse 36? Jesus says, I perceive power going out from me. In other words, Jesus knew that something had happened. Jesus had a sense that somebody had just been healed. And I don't know how exactly this worked. I don't have an answer to everything with this. But Jesus just knew. Jesus knew that healing virtue in some way had gone out of him and had touched someone needy. So who was it? I want to know who received this. And then did you see what it says in verse 47? The woman saw that she was not hidden. Now, I think especially if you combine this with the account as it's described in Mark chapter 5, verse 32. This is what Mark chapter 5, verse 32 says. Ready for this? It says, he looked around her to see who had done this thing. In other words, I believe that when Jesus said, who touched me? I think he was staring right at the woman. Wait, stop. Somebody touched me. What are you, crazy? No, he said, who touched me? And he's looking right at the woman when he says that. And what does she say? She says, busted. (laughs) Everybody knows. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for calling me out in front of everybody. Now, I have to say, don't you agree that this would be terribly embarrassing for this woman? I don't think there's any way around it. She, She was embarrassed. I don't know if humiliate, maybe humiliate is too strong a word, but, but certainly so. This woman was embarrassed. She wanted to come, and, and if I'm using the words right, she wanted to come and sneak away a blessing, steal away a blessing, and remain anonymous. And Jesus blows everything by, by taking this woman who's now healed. You can just imagine how happy she is because she knows she's healed. But now Jesus has just mortified her in the presence of everybody. Called her out. 
There she is now. She's so embarrassed. Why would Jesus do this? Well, let me say this. I, I have to operate from the premise that Jesus being full of love, full of grace, though he did embarrass her, he didn't do it in order to embarrass her. In other words, he's not just torturing her a little bit. There's a purpose. There's a good purpose. And I would say there's actually several good purposes why Jesus called her out. Here we go. Number one, Jesus did it so that she would know that she was healed. I know verse 47 says that she was healed immediately. But do you know what Jesus told her right here, right now? He looked at the woman. He said, your faith has healed you. I wonder, especially with the particular kind of affliction that this woman had, I wonder if not in an hour she would have wondered, am I healed or not? Oh, my heavens, what's going to happen? I mean, this thing has kind of come and go at different times. Maybe it just would temporarily. Am I really healed or not? And all that stress, all that difficulty. No, but when she heard the pronouncement of Jesus the Messiah come to her and say, woman, you are healed. Your faith has, has healed you. She goes, well, yes, okay, I know that I'm healed now. That was one benefit that Jesus gained from sort of calling her out. Here's a second one. Jesus did it so that others would know that she was healed. I, I think I can say this, you know, tastefully enough, that this woman had an affliction that would normally be rather private. Other people wouldn't know whether she was afflicted or not afflicted. And with somebody in that kind of situation, it might be theoretically possible for somebody to just say, well, I'm all better now when you're not. Jesus wanted everybody to know, this woman's healed. Hey, she's clean. You don't have to avoid her. You don't have to put yourself away from contact with her. She is healed. As a matter of fact, look what it says there in verse 37. It says, she declared to him in the presence of all the people that she had touched him. She, she explained it all, and Jesus wanted her to tell the story. Tell it, woman, not so that just I know that you're healed, so that everybody around can hear that you are healed, in fact. But then Jesus said, and here's the third reason, Jesus did it so that she would know why she was healed. Why was she healed? Look at what he says in verse 48. Your faith has made you well. Remember I was talking about superstition before? Don't you think it would have been something a little bit incomplete if the woman actually thought that it was her touching of Jesus' garment that healed her? And she said, woman, I know you touched the hem of my garment. That's fine. But you know what? That's not what really healed you. It wasn't the tactile touch of your fingers. It was your faith that healed you. And I want you to get that straight. I want you to have your faith be a little bit less superstitious and a little bit more in the living God. Your faith has made you well. Here's a fourth reason. Jesus did not want this woman to think or perhaps to fear that she had stolen a blessing. Jesus didn't want it to where this woman could never look him again in the eye because he was afraid that she might have stole something from him. No, no, no. He wanted her to know that she received it by faith and to be confident in that. And by the way, as well, Jesus did it as well so that a particular onlooker could see it and be impressed with her faith. Who have we just completely forgotten about in all this? Jairus and his daughter. I, I mean, this woman, the story of the woman is so engaging. We just forget about Jairus. Let me tell you, Jairus didn't forget about Jairus. He's sitting there thinking, can this go any slower? Please, lady, can we move it along? Jesus, she's healed. Can we get to my house? 
I mean, you can, you can just imagine how Jairus is just dying a thousand deaths inside. But right there in front of him, Jesus gives him reason to believe. It's almost as if, and I don't mean to be flippant about this, but it's almost Jesus gives Jairus a little wink. And he says, if I can do this for her, I can minister to your daughter as well. It was for Jairus' faith. But here's another one. And I think this is really precious. This would be my last one. Uh, six total reasons. I don't know if you've been counting, but here's number six. Maybe it seemed like 16 to you, but it's really only number six. Jesus did this because he had something to say to this woman that as far as I can tell, at least this is recorded in the Gospels, that he never said to any other woman. Jesus looked her in the eyes and he said to her, daughter. As far as we know in the scriptures, Jesus never called another woman daughter in this way. He called her forth to give her a special name of relationship and tenderness. I love you, he was saying. You're like a daughter to me. Now, look, I I think this is so beautiful, so powerful, but it's so instructive because I, I will tell you this. Not only is it true that we need to reach out to Jesus with the hand of faith, But it's also true that there are times when being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ will mean that you're embarrassed in front of other people. Matter of fact, it seems like there's times when Jesus deliberately engineers your embarrassment. Now, what do we make of times like that? I would just say this. Jesus isn't doing it for the sake of the embarrassment. He's doing it because there are other things he wants to accomplish as well. So don't be afraid of it. God meant this to be nothing but blessing for this woman. And in fact, it was. But then again, we think, poor Jairus. All this time, as I said before, he's dying a thousand deaths as his daughter literally is dying. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, so the words are still coming out of the mouth of Jesus. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, and you can only imagine the bitterness and the spite with which these words were spoken. He said, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher. I mean, you can almost imagine him giving Jesus' eyes a fire when he looked at Jesus. And, you know, wasted enough time with this wonderful theological discussion with the woman. You know, Jesus, you could have gone to my house and taken care of the daughter and then gone back and done whatever you want to with this woman. This woman's had her problem for 12 years. Another half hour is not going to matter. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. But notice this. It says, verse 50, but when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, and I imagine Jesus just looking into Jairus' face. Jairus, there's tears streaming down his face. He's almost beside himself. He just, he's hardly holding it together. Jesus looks him in the eye and he says, do not be afraid, only believe and she will be made well. Now, how can you hear those words when your daughter just died? But Jesus called Jairus to hear it, to hope against hope, to receive it right then at that moment. Well, Jesus gave Jairus two things to do. Did you see that there? It's in verse 49, or excuse me, verse 50. First, he says, do not be afraid. I'll be honest, those words sound cruel to a man who just heard that his daughter died. It almost sounds like this, and I'm not saying Jesus said, but I'm just saying it's in this direction that Jesus kind of said, hey, get over it. 
How can, you can't say that. But Jesus looked at him and said, do not be afraid. But you see, Jesus knew something, that fear and faith don't go together. I don't know if they're opposites, but if they're not, it's pretty close. Don't be afraid. And then did you see what he says there next? It's beautiful. The second command. It wasn't just believe. What did he say? Only believe. Isn't that powerful? Don't try to believe and be afraid at the same time. Get rid of your fear. Only believe. Don't try to believe and figure it out. Don't try to believe and make sense of the delay. No, stop trying to figure it. Just, just believe. Don't believe and, and work on the problem. Don't believe. and not, No, just believe. Just believe that I am who I say I am. Just believe that I can do what you know I can do. Just believe that the same power that just healed this woman, I'm going to go to your house and look at your daughter. And again, verse 50, only believe and she will be made well. At that moment, before we go into verse 51, Jairus had a choice. He could believe the words of Jesus or he could not. And I just want you to know, in many ways, it was far easier to doubt the words of Jesus. My daughter's dead. She's been sick a long time. Jesus is too late. I know that dead people are dead and they just don't go around alive again. On and on. All that told um, Jairus, forget it. The one thing he had opposing all of that was Jesus' promise. Don't be afraid. Only believe and she'll be made well. Verse 51. When he came into the house, okay, I just, I just, I can't get this scene out of my mind. Can you imagine how the tone of the crowd changed? I mean, when they're on their way originally to Jairus's house, everybody's excited. It's a, he's going to save the ruler of the synagogue's daughter. He's going to save the daughter. Oh, it's wonderful. Jairus's daughter. He's going to save Jairus's daughter. When they find out that he's dead, when she's dead, I mean. It's like all the air is out of the blue. But they trudge, they make them. Now people just want to know what's going to happen. When he came into the house, verse 51, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So Jesus gets to the house. He goes, okay, small house, guys. Only three of you can come in. Uh, Peter, James, and John, you guys come in with me. Now, we often think, oh, wow, these were the special favorites of Jesus. I don't know. Maybe they had a special thing with Jesus. Isn't it just as likely that like a school teacher looks over the class and she goes, okay, what three kids do I really need to keep my eye on? Who do I need to keep close to me? Peter, James, John, you come with me. I can't leave you out there by yourself. 
right? It could have been that just as well. But anyway, he goes in with those and the father and mother, everybody's weeping, everybody's mourning. And I don't need to go into it with great depth. But in those days, it was considered appropriate to hire professional mourners. And boom, as soon as people heard that she was dead, the professional mourners were on the scene. And they're making all it to do and they're wailing and they're weeping. And we would look, oh, that's so insincere, but it was just considered normal and cultural in that context. Everybody was doing it. And so oh, loud mourning and Jesus, everybody's weeping, everybody's morning but the shallowness of the professional mourners was displayed was how quickly they went from mourning to scorning and they ridiculed jesus because jesus said she's not dead she's only sleeping they turned and ridiculed him i gotta say just that idea of these people sneering at jesus and mocking him and ridiculing him Whenever I think about it, it always hits me. I always think of how often Jesus was mocked and ridiculed. You know, it's a painful thing to be made fun of. Jesus experienced it a lot. Do people sometimes mock you for your values, for who you want to be as a Christian man or a Christian woman? Or sometimes you made the object of scorn. Let me tell you, Jesus endured it first. And I can think of no greater, more terrible example than when Jesus hung on the cross. Do you realize that as Jesus hung on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, as he stood there as our substitute, receiving upon himself our sin and guilt, as the Father judged it in him, as Jesus hung there on the cross performing the most holy act of sacrificial love that this earth or the universe has ever seen, as he hung upon that cross, they mocked him they made fun of him they thought it was something to laugh about it wasn't enough for the religious leaders to say okay we won he lost and walk away no they had to mock him to his face now that was the the pinnacle of it that was the extremity of it but we see it even here they mocked him And probably even more today than in the time of Jesus, we live in an age of mockery and ridicule. We live in a time when people find it so easy to sneer and snark against anything that seems or claims to be good. It's everywhere, isn't it? I read something really uh, remarkable by a preacher that I've been reading as I make my way through. Look, his name is Morrison and he was a Scottish preacher. He said this, I should like to say also to those who are tempted to see only the ridiculous side of things that in perhaps the whole gamut of character, there is nothing quite so dangerous as that. When we take to ridiculing all that is best and worthiest in others, by that very habit, we destroy the power of believing what is worthiest in ourselves. I'm just trying to turn a little red light of awareness on. And look, I'm not saying that we should be all glum and that we should never have fun and never make clever remarks because it's funny and I enjoy it as much as the next character. But look, we we just got to be careful, don't we? That we don't live our life mocking everything that's good. Looking for every, you know, funny side of, of something holy. It's just a danger in our modern age. You see, Jesus said, she's not dead, but sleeping. They mocked him. What did Jesus do? Look at it there in verse 44. It says, he put them all outside. Get out, Jesus said. You're going to mock? 
You're going to look at the holy things of God. You're going to be confronted in the presence of the power of God. And you think it's something to mock and sneer at? Get out. I'm not going to nuke you. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm not going to wipe you off the face of the earth. No, 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 no. But you know what? You're not going to be around or see any of the great things that I do. Get out. You have no place here. Again, let me quote Morrison. He says, it was not a caprice that when Jesus was ridiculed, he turned the mockers out of the miracle chamber. That is what the Almighty always does when men and women take themselves to mocking. He shuts the door on them so that they cannot see the miracles with which the universe is teeming. And they miss out on the best because in their blind folly, they have laughed the giver of the best to scorn. So let's just watch it. Again, I'm not trying to teach something overboard to you here. I'm just trying to communicate that, that it can go overboard in our society, this attraction to mockery. Let's get to the good part. Verse 54, Jesus says to her, little girl, arise. Now, can't you imagine Peter, James, or John tapping Jesus on the shoulder? Jesus, she's dead. She can't hear you. But you know what? God can speak to the dead as if they're living. And he can bring life to the dead just by the calling sound of his voice. That's exactly what he did with this little girl. Little girl, arise. She rose up. She became alive again. She was resuscitated, not resurrected, but resuscitated. And what did Jesus do? I like it. Verse 55, it says, he commanded that something be given her to eat. I never considered this before. One commentator said that Jesus did this for the sake of the mother. Because the mother was probably so shocked that Jesus said, look, you're going to have a stroke, lady, if I don't give you something to go get her something to eat. And said, okay, good, good. I can prepare a meal or something. You can just imagine the glory and the power of this scene. Verse 56 says it well. Her parents were astonished. Isn't it beautiful? Jesus didn't fail Jairus. And he didn't fail the woman who needed healing. You know what I love about this story? When you talk about the woman with the issue of blood, you forget all about Jairus. When you talk about Jairus and his daughter, you forget all about the woman who had the issue of blood. But Jesus remembered them both, and he didn't fail either one. And isn't it beautiful how actually each of the stories intertwine? How old was Jairus' daughter? Twelve. How long had the woman been afflicted? Twelve years. Jairus had 12 years of sunshine that were about to be extinguished. The woman had 12 years of agony that seemed hopeless to be healed. Now, Jairus, here's a contrast. Jairus was an important man, a a ruler of the synagogue. What about the woman? The woman was a nobody. Do you realize we don't even know her name? An important man and a nobody. Jesus met both their needs. Jairus was probably wealthy because he was an important man. The woman was poor because she had spent all of her money on doctors. Jairus came publicly. The woman came secretly. Jairus thought that Jesus would have to do a lot to heal his daughter. Jesus, come to my house and do this. That's what you got to do for my daughter to be healed. The, the woman didn't think Jesus had to do anything. Jesus, you just stand there and I'll touch your garment and I'll be healed. Jesus responded to the woman immediately. But with Jairus, 
it was a deliberately chosen delay before he ministered to Jairus' knee. Jairus' daughter was healed secretly in a room where only a few people were. The woman was healed publicly, and Jesus wanted everybody to see it and know it. But each of them were, in a special way, daughters. Here we go. Jairus, his daughter was healed. And this woman that Jesus looked upon, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Let's just close with this idea. Isn't it beautiful how Jesus knows how to respond to each individual need? You know, sometimes when I look at the human race, I'm, I'm astonished at how different we all are. I look at my own children and I'm astonished how different they are. But then other times I look at the mass of humanity and I'm struck with how alike we are. Whether you think we're alike or different at a particular point, Jesus knows how to meet each individual need. He knows how to speak to where you're at right here tonight. And the man, the man who's fully God and fully man, the man who did the great work on the cross for us, the same one he comes and he says, I, I will minister to you and meet your need where you're at. Just, just reach out to me in real faith. Don't just make casual contact. Or how about this? Don't be afraid, only believe. Father, we want to receive that word from you. I pray for those especially tonight, Lord. They've been, uh, they've been trying to believe and figure it out. They've been trying to believe and plan for every contingency. They've been trying to believe and make up backup plans. They've been trying to believe and understand it all. And Lord, I just pray that you give them the gift tonight to only believe. To never be satisfied with bumping into you, Jesus, so to speak. But rather with holding on to you with the hand of faith. We pray that we'd all do that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.